Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spasciano, joined, as always, by the BS Express himself, Benny Scala. Benny, the 999 to my one. How are you doing today? <laughs> well, I'm very happy to report. So we, we uh, on our Facebook page, Dan and Benny in the Ring, we started out on January 26th with three members, and you and I were two of them. And uh, it was always the goal to hit 1,000 members. Well, I'm pleased to report on October 7th, can't give you the exact time, but on October 7th, we hit the 1,000 mark. So uh, we, we, you know, it took us about, what, uh, a little bit uh, less than nine months, which I think is great. But, uh, you know, 1,000 is great. But as uh, Happy Gilmore told Shooter McGavin, the way I see it, we've only just begun. Right. Yeah, I mean, you figure we were... uh... You know, uh, over the course of a less than nine months, you're you're more than a hundred people. Uh oh, more you know, a hundred hundred people, twenty twenty five, thirty new fans a week. Yeah, we keep growing, and and how many times have we said it, Benny? We can't do this without them. Yeah. And the group continues the the wonderful conversations. And speaking of wonderful conversations, we are uh, we are going to have a good one tonight. We're joined by a friend of the show. He's been uh, anybody that knows anything about his wrestling history or has read about wrestling history. has probably seen some of the words this man has put to paper. We are joined by uh, wrestling history, historian, author, and all around just knowledge. Uh, what's the what, what's the best way to describe you, Scott? Uh, uh, just a, just a, a, a walking encyclopedia of wrestling. We're joined by Scott Teal. Scott, thanks for being here. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I don't know about the encyclopedia part, but I, I know what I, I know a little bit, and I know where. If I don't know it, I know where to find it. <laughs> That's all it counts. There you go. <laughs> How are y'all guys doing? Fantastic. Wonderful. Good. Always, always look forward to these good, good kind of conversations. You know, um, I, I want to actually. We we talked about your your time uh, documenting and and your time in the wrestling business. I actually want to start with your time out of the business you mentioned recently in an interview benny brought this to my attention uh you said between 1980 and 1993 you were not you were out of the business you weren't involved in wrestling at all no in fact i i only stayed in touch with just a few people um uh, I, there's a few wrestlers that, that I talk to now and then, but very, very seldom and very, very few. As far when I got out of the business in 1980, I, I, I even said something to my wife. I said, you know what? I'll probably never have anything to do with the wrestling business again. And it wasn't because I was upset or uh, didn't like it. It's just that I just didn't see a place for myself. I had a good job with UPS and, uh, and it's sort of funny because, uh, just before I got out, uh, my wife, she says, well, well what are you going to, uh, what are you going to do with your life? I said, well, I just, keep take, taking pictures at the wrestling. And if I can sell programs, I'll sell programs. Well, she got me, pushed me to, you know, stay with UPS. And so that's what I did. And I'm glad I did because I got a good retirement today. And, uh, but that was what I, you know, I figured I, I was never going to make any money in the wrestling business. So I, I just stuck it out with UPS and, uh, I got 37 years with them before I retired and now I'm just living the dream. Wow. Very nice. I have, this is a kind of long-winded question, as is my want with a W-O-N-T. 
But um, in the last interview, you you, you kind of went against the the mainstream, the, the grain, if you will, as far as Vince McMahon. And you, you postured that you didn't think Vince McMahon was the person who killed the territories. You kind of thought that they were, you know, most of them were going sideways anyway. Um, so I, I guess two part question. Why do you think that was happening? What, what was happening with these territories where they be, they were not being able to sustain themselves? And number two. It, it, this is a you know a, a fantasy kind of question. What if Vince McMahon Jr. was more like his dad, and you know a little bit less greedy, a little less ambitious, and was just you know content with his little piece of the pie, which albeit a pretty big piece of the pie in New York. How do you think wrestling would look today if if that all played out that way? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I still believe a lot of the territories were on, going on on the downward side. You know, when Vince Mc, before Vince McMahon took over here in Nashville, I don't think Nick Goulas would have been in business another two three years. Uh, I think he would have, you know, just either dropped out or, you know, as he as he did, he ended up selling to Jerry Jarrett, and Memphis did great for for a pe- period of time, but. Uh, a lot of the territories were, were on their way down. Atlanta was doing great. You know, uh, I guess Portland was still doing pretty well and Ch- Charlotte was doing okay, but they had, you know, a whole, a lot better media, a lot better uh, outlets to get their pro their, uh, their show out to the people. But you look at a lot of the smaller territories, uh, they just weren't doing as well. Yeah. Well, there again, Dallas was doing really good with the Von Ericks, but I think uh, even without Vince, I think the territories would have, eventually fallen and, and just gone to pieces because uh, to me it just it just seemed like that's the direction they were all going uh, now if they if Vince had stayed in New York and he hadn't branched out I still think uh, things would have eventually gone south because uh, w- with technology you know the observer came out I remember in 1986 or 87 uh, a friend of mine he was a big fan in Nashville him and his wife they had been going to the matches in Nashville since the late uh, early fifties. And he called me one day and told me he had this newsletter and I had never heard of it. Cause like I said, I was out of the business and he, he, uh, I went over to talk to him and he gave me a couple of issues and I was just amazed that, uh, the, you know, that the things the observer talked about, I mean, it just shocked me. I could not believe that somebody was getting away. Uh, if nothing else, they were getting away with printing that thing. And somebody, you know, didn't go over and shoot him. Uh, but, uh, I just think the business would have would have gotten worse, uh, regardless if Vince McMahon had moved, because uh, especially once as soon as the Internet came along, the late 90s, I guess that's about when it was. Uh, as soon as that started happening, man, everybody all of a sudden gets started getting smartening up because uh, everybody starts posting all this information. They'd they'd post uh, uh, word glossaries telling what different words mean, you know, like blade. And then they'd say, what, what does it mean to be smart? And they'd explain that. Uh, wrestling never uh, would would have continued. I don't think the way it used to be. And I hear people all the time. They say, you know, one day pro wrestling will come back. Somebody will have a great promotion and they'll come back and it'll be like it was. I don't believe that because uh, as I said, the internet, everything is available. Everybody knows everything that's going on in pro wrestling. I've got friends that have nothing to do with wrestling. They don't watch it, but they, every once in a while, they, they, they'll, take a peek at it, but they tell me things that just, uh, it just floors me that they, you know, they might talk about some guy using a blade or something. And these guys aren't even wrestling fans, but all somehow they, they hear about these things. So I don't know, you know, I don't think that anything, no matter what you do, no matter what kind of promotion, how well you pr- promote it, 
I don't think wrestling's ever going to do more than it is now. Uh, look at TNA and uh, I don't even know what the new groups are. I know there's, there's some, there's, I can't remember what the name of, there's another group out, but I, I don't even think that, yeah, that's it. I don't know how good they're doing, but I don't hear much about them. You know, I think they do well enough to stay in business, but I don't know. It could be like a TNA. They just got a lot of money behind them and they're just, you know, going through it and whoever's funding the money doesn't care. It's just like a toy to them. Okay. Well, let me ask you something um, to, to continue down that thread. If Vince had stayed in New York, had been more like his father and just kept the territory, do you think with the Madison Square Garden crowd and all that, would that have been enough or would the WWF have not lasted either during that, that downfall that you just described? I think they probably could have kept going, uh, but I don't know how long. And I don't know, like I said, I don't know if uh, the, the internet coming along would have killed it for them or the wrestling observer getting out. Uh, it's, it's hard to say. I don't know if they could have, I don't think they would have kept going longer than the, I'd say probably late nineties. I think after that, they definitely business would have fallen off. Cause you know, back in the day we, in the eighties that one and before that, you know, we, we did everything we could to make people believe. And I don't care what you came up and said to me. I'd deny it, you know, strongly that, that there was anything not on the up and up about wrestling. You know, as far as I was concerned, if a fan said anything, I'd tell them. I said, well, you, you ought to get in the ring and you could see. I just, you know, we just make something up, really. But uh, I just don't think uh, with the Internet that they, they could have kept the secrets and they could have kept the public really believing in what they were doing. I think between the the internet and I think a big factor also was the fact that uh, cable, you know, you, you had these national channels now, and uh, you know the res- wrestling lifeblood, at least in my opinion, with the territories was advertising on your, you know, the, the the TV show on the local station, which sold tickets to the local arena. Now all of a sudden you have like USA Network, you have TNT, where you know the the, the local promotion, you, it kind of gets swallowed up. I think. Absolutely. And then and because during the big days of uh, WTBS and uh, and Georgia Championship Wrestling, people wanted to see uh, Tommy Rich. One of the things Nick Goulis did in Chattanooga each week, he'd bring in a main event from from Georgia, from Atlanta. You know, he might have the Andersons against Tony Atlas and Tommy Rich. Well, after they do that a few times, well, people want to see Tommy Rich and Tony Atlas more often. You know, they, they weren't content with the, with the Tennessee wrestlers. So that, that, that did, that's exactly right. That had a lot to do with, with the, you know, fact of the uh, local promotions, the territorial promotions going down the tubes, Florida. I mean, look how strong Florida was. And the, you know, as you got into the mid eighties, it was really going downhill. Right. So, uh, Scott, you know, with the advent of all the speaking of, you know, the, the Internet and things like that, you know, the all the the online uh, streaming sites, you got Hulu, you got Netflix, you got Peacock. Uh, there's only a gazillion series, TV series that you can binge watch. And one of them that I got hooked on was Young Rock. I think it's only one season so far. It's, you know, it's Young Rocky, Rocky Johnson. I mean, uh, Young, Young, Young Rocky uh, Dwayne Johnson. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah. it does have it. It features Rocky Johnson. I got tongue tied there for a little bit. I'm okay now. Um, <laughs> smack myself in the head. But yeah, it, it and he there's Rocky Johnson gets a lot of uh, 
airtime on this show on, on Young Rock. And I noticed on the website that uh, there is there was a book, uh, Soul Man Rocky Johnson, and it just says out of print. Um, will will that ever come back? And if not, why not? Well, I didn't publish that book. Uh, if I had, I, I well, just I guess best way to say that is I didn't publish it, and I'm, at this point, I'm glad I didn't. Uh, because it, it was just a can of worms. ECW Press spent, there's no telling how much money they spent, you know, putting books in all the bookstores nationwide. And they did a, it was a big, big deal to them because uh, they paid the biggest advance to, well, they're supposed to pay it to me, but, uh, and Rocky, but they paid the biggest advance, uh, offered the biggest advance to Rocky that they ever paid anybody. And part of that was because the Canadian government w was giving a grant to Canadian authors and Rocky being the person on the contract. So they were able to do that. But that was the biggest uh, advance they had ever given an author for a book. Uh, the problem was once the book came out, Rocky started all kinds of garbage. You know, he sent me, had his lawyer send me a letter saying I got one check of one third of the advance I was supposed to get. And the next thing I know, I get a letter from Rocky's lawyer. It said I was owed nothing else because uh, I wasn't on the contract. Well, and that was true. I wasn't on the contract, but Rocky and I had a verbal agreement. And the reason I wasn't on the contract was because uh ECW Press said that if an American or another, any other author from another country was on the contract, they couldn't get the the, the uh, grant money from the Canadian government. So I talked to Rocky and he said, okay, he says, I'll tell you what, he says, just let me sign the contract and I'll send you the amount that, that we, we would have gone to you if you had been on the contract. And I believed him like a dope. And uh, so, like I said, the next thing I know, I'm getting a letter saying I wasn't owed anything. Rocky's telling ECW Press that he wrote the book, that I just helped him with it. Yeah, it was just a constant barrage of stuff. I don't know what wound up being the, um, the, the final stroke that ECW Press actually pulled the books from the bookstores, but Rocky caused them so much trouble. Uh, I, I don't know a lot. I, I still myself don't even know the details, but I do know he was causing problems. Somebody told me that they read somewhere that uh, they were somebody, Dwayne maybe, was wanting to make a, a movie from the book, but they wanted they didn't want me to be a part of it. And that's why they were causing so much problems. I don't I, I, like I said, I don't know exactly what the truth is, but I do know ECW Press spent tens and tens of thousands of dollars promoting that book and they lost their shirts on that uh, so that's the the reason it's not available anymore I, I i doubt it'll ever come back i mean maybe ecw press might might i i mean i seriously doubt it but i can't see anybody else doing it either uh i don't know i, I don't know where they get their information they sure can't use the stuff that uh that i wrote with Rocky because all that stuff that I wrote came from my research and the questions I asked Rocky, nobody else knew that stuff. And it, it'll be pretty evident that if somebody else tries to, you know, reword what I wrote, it's going to be pretty evident uh, where it came from. And I don't think ECW press would allow it. You know, I think they would probably file a lawsuit against whoever tried to, you know, publish the book. And it's a shame because Rocky, had, it was a, and I'm not, you know, I'm not bragging about my own talent, but it was a great story. Rocky had a great, uh, you know, the book was really good. It was interesting. We really went in depth on everything. Well, 
uh, here now, you know, here is his legacy. He doesn't have a legacy. You know, he could have had all these books out there. People know who Rocky Johnson was. Well, he sh shot himself in the foot. You know, it's really funny because on this show, <laughs> he's portrayed as, you know, very charismatic, very flamboyant, but also very undependable. The, the, you know, oh, yeah. uh, Dwayne Johnson's mo The Rock's mom was the, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the hard, you know, hard rock in the family, the dependable one. So what you're saying pretty much mirrors what I saw in that that miniseries. Yes, hey, I haven't seen the miniseries. It's just too many bad memories. <laughs> so I didn't even want to I didn't even want to see it, you know. But, uh, yeah, I I've, I don't know about being undependable. I, I, get, I mean, in the business, he was fairly dependable from what I know. Uh, I just know in the later days when he's just trying to make a living, you know, when he wasn't able to wrestle anymore, he, he did a lot of things, uh, that, you know, just say wasn't quite on the up and up and you can, you can research online newspapers, the things that he did, uh, problems he had with the law, as far as, uh, sexual encounters, Memphis Jackson, you know, he was arrested there for, uh, I can't remember it was something with a minor minor or something, but you can find all this online. He, he, he was always making advances at the women at Ohio Valley wrestling. I got people that were there that tell me that constantly, he was just constantly on these girls trying to, you know, whatever. And there was a he lot of real IP between him and Tony Atlas. Wasn't there? I'm sorry, Dan. No, you're fine. Yeah, there was. Uh, Tony has his side of the story. Rocky has his. So I don't know. You know, I, at this point, I, I more tend, tend to believe Tony just because of the experience I had with Rocky and the things he did to me. Uh, the thing with Rocky is, is part of it was uh, a couple of people got in his ear, uh, a couple of people down there in Tampa and got in his ear and told him why he shouldn't be, you know, I shouldn't get as much money as I was getting for the book, even though I wrote the whole thing. You know, I shouldn't be getting, and they, and they're the ones really that caused all the problems because Rocky called me, uh, after I got that first letter from the, from his attorney and he said, uh, he apologized. He says, I'm so sorry. He says, I'm going to send you all the money. You're going to be back 50% on this book. He says, I let the wrong, I listened to the wrong people. And he was talking about Brian Blair and, uh, that guy, I can't remember the guy's name. He's a guy that writes those publishes those comic books on wrestling. That was his attorney. But he said it, he he and he says I, I just let them get in my ear and let them talk you know talk me into that. He says I never should have listened to him. I've got him on tape saying that. You know I have never shared it with anybody, but I do have it. Mm. You 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 said that uh, if things had gone right for Rocky Johnson, he could have had multiple books. That that leads perfect into another question I wanted to ask you about last time you were on the show, you mentioned you were writing the second volume to the book uh, about Frankie Kane. Yeah. I was just wondering if yeah. you have an update on how that's going. Yeah. Um, it, before I get into that, uh, I've got probably another book, maybe half of them. I don't know, probably never 200, 100 page book on Rocky stuff that I didn't even include in the first book. Uh, but oh, wow. I doubt I'd ever do it. I, I just don't want to take a chance getting sued by Dwayne or whoever. I don't know what would happen if I tried that. Uh, Frankie Kane, uh, volume two. Uh, I'm not real. I just, somebody this morning that wrote and asked me, he says, is Frankie volume two going to be out by the end of this year? Like you had thought it might be. Well, I'm, I'm so far behind. It's just, I just now finished the Burt Prentice book. I'm now working on Joel Goodhart's book about, uh, his promotion up in Philadelphia. 
uh, I've got all of Frankie's uh, interview work done. Uh, I mean, we have done hundreds and hundreds of hours of stuff. And I've probably got three fourths of it already typed up. I got to get, but I've got to find time to type up the rest. Uh, but it's it's a giant jigsaw puzzle because I, I, I used to go visit Frankie all the time. And every time I did, we'd sit down and record. So I have um, all this, uh, all these files typed up, but it's like stuff all over the place. You know, it's going to be like moving stuff around all over, just trying to keep everything like in chronological chronological order. So it's still it's probably going to be next year sometime. I don't know. I'm hoping it'll be before next summer. Okay. Nice. Do you have any? Uh, I obviously being as far behind as you are. Um, well, as you say, as you say, you are. Uh, do you have any projects in the works that you might you haven't started yet that are? You know what I mean. The uh, the 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 to be continued sticky notes. Oh, I've got projects that I've started or that uh, I've got a couple people, Tim Dills, who did the uh, that I worked with on that first uh, uh, great wrestling venues, Knoxville book. Uh, I've got the second half of that, which would be 1961 all the way up till the la very last show in Knoxville. Uh, that's Tim has all the material to me. I've just got to find time to to get down and edit it. And then uh, Chris Knights, uh, he that that worked on the that really was the driving force behind the Amarillo book. Uh, he sent me 1961 through the last uh, Amarillo uh, match. And I, again, it's the same as Tim Dills. I, I've got to get busy just to edit it, and it's finding enough time to do all this. I'm so busy. It's, I've been telling people lately, I'm more busy now than I ever was when I was meeting between our church, grandchildren, writing, researching, traveling. My wife and I are, you know, doing a good bit of traveling. Being since we're both retired now, and it's it's just hard to find time to do everything. Uh, today, man, I spent half a day. PayPal changed their shipping uh system to some other company and you would not believe the hoops you have to jump through to ship this stuff now you can't just do multiple ship multiple packages you got to do them one at a time oh my goodness i was so frustrated today i don't mm. i'm gonna try and find probably try and find a different shipping company to, to ship the books with i mean uh shipping uh sir you know what i mean a service that where i get yeah, print service. my own postage yeah, but uh, uh, PayPal has made the worst mistake with all that. But then as far as other books, uh, yeah, I've got the Luthez, the Buddy Rogers uh, record books I'm working on. Uh, all, in, in addition to the uh, Knoxville and Amarillo books, uh, John Cosper contacted me just today, in fact, on doing a great wrestling venues book on Louisville. And John is the man when it comes to Louisville. Uh, he knows his stuff. And so I'm really excited about that. Uh, I've got more wrestling, uh, classic wrestling programs coming out. I'm going to be doing a, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but I uh, re reprint the old programs from the territories. Yes. And I've, I've got one I'll be doing on uh, Calgary. Uh, I've got two that'll be out on Jacksonville, Florida. And I'll have uh, several, uh, two two pretty pretty soon on, uh, on St. Louis, uh, some of the, the years after the ones I've already done. And uh, my wrestling archive project, the interviews, uh, that's something I told my wife last week I'm going to start concentrating on because here we lost Reggie Parks a couple weeks ago. And he's a guy that I, I, I've talked to him so many times about, let's get to talk and, and do an interview. I mean, he, you know, he made the belts for, for all the promoters yes. back, in the, back in the day. And what stories he would have had. Well, he's 
he's gone now and I miss my opportunity to get his story down. But so many of these guys, when they pass, you know, we lose that history that nobody else has that history. It's not written down. Nobody knows, knows any of it. So when we lose, when these guys pass away, we lose it. So one of the things I'm going to concentrate on is, is just start every afternoon, get on the phone and call somebody and spend an hour or two every day with one of the old timers and even some of the newer guys. I mean, some of these newer guys have great stories too, but mainly the older ones, because they're not going to be here forever. And uh, I want to get those uh, into my uh, wrestling archive project books. Very nice. Y- <laughs> you know, y- y- it kind of circles back to what we were talking about with, you know, y- the older wrestlers and the territory days. I- I'm curious in-, in Benny and I have talked about it so many times on the show. Uh, when I was a, a kid, I- Growing up where I lived, we got both the the uh, Baltimore and DC television stations. So I had WWF on one channel, NWA on the other, and then ESPN started carrying the AWA. And I remember it, it was just anything I could get a hold of. I was watching wrestling as a kid, and nowadays it seems like it's one or the other. You you like the WWE, you like AEW, or you hate them both, and you only like some random indie promotion, like you said, with a crowd of about 400. Uh, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why it seems like wrestling is so polarized. Benny always says, and tell me I'm wrong, Benny, that, that, you know, the more the merrier when it comes to watching stuff like wrestling, but it seems today that people are almost like modern sports fans loyal to a brand and that's it. Yeah, I'm not real familiar with that at all. I, I mean, I know there's uh, there's all you know all those different brands, AEW, WWE, uh, and I think you mentioned it earlier this morning, NWA Hollywood or something like. Oh no, that's what you had access to before. Uh, but no, I just I don't know really much about that. Uh, whether you know how whether people latch onto one promotion or not. I, I guess it's just what you enjoy. But my problem is I don't know the difference between WWD, WWE and AEW. I, I never watch it. I've never seen any of their shows in the past 20 years. So I, I couldn't even begin to tell you why somebody would prefer one over the other. From what I understand, I mean, I always figured they're all pretty much alike because you got WWE and then the other promotions are almost like WWE light. So, so I, I really couldn't answer that very well. I, I think that somehow the wrestling fan has evolved over the years because like, a, you know, a, when I in in the early '80s, so I had access to WWF. I had on Channel 41 from New Jersey the uh, wrestling from the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. I had wow. uh, WCC, you know, world class wrestling. I think I even got Southwest Championship Wrestling. Yeah, I got C- uh, wrestling from Florida, wrestling from Georgia. I think at one point I had five different ones, and like if if there was five more, I would have been doubly happy. Like I didn't feel like I ever needed to choose. The more that, you know, and they were all different. I mean, the, the style from, uh, you know, Georgia wrestling was way different than, than New York wrestling. But to me, like, I couldn't get enough of it. But now it seems like the average fan that you have to attach yourself to one brand. And, I mean, you, you see on Facebook, there's literally jihads between, you know, WWE fans and AEW fans. I don't know what happened where, like, the, a, a wrestling fan like me growing up couldn't get enough wrestling, whereas now it's like, you have to have a certain, you know, you have to be aligned to a certain promotion. I don't know what happened. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. You know, it's it's like you said a minute ago about uh, you, you'd watch 
championship wrestling from Georgia, and it was so different from New York wrestling. And and I think most of the promotions you you mentioned, they were all different. Right. You know, they had all different styles. I mean, I went from Florida, which man, I love Florida wrestling. It oh, was yeah. just so. I mean, it was like amateur wrestling, but it was, it was exciting. They did their little angles, and it was just every week you wanted. It was like a soap opera. Well, I come to Tennessee, and and it's like Keystone Cops. And somebody else made that comment. I can't remember who it was. I mean, it was so different. It was just, and it was for co- the country people, you know, the the, the people. The, I don't know. It was, it was just a different audience. If you had brought Florida Championship Wrestling into Tennessee, I don't think people would have, would have even cared about it because they like their Jackie Fargo cutting up in the ring. I saw more comedy in Jackie in, uh, in Tennessee wrestling than I ever saw in any comedy club. I mean, it was just constant funny stuff, you know, and not that I cared about the funny stuff, but I, I be honest, I really didn't like it at first. It grew on me after a while. And of course it became what I was doing. You know, I became involved with it, but it was just so different. Uh, but I think maybe WWW, WWE and uh, AEW, like I said, I don't know anything about them, but maybe they're so much alike that people say, well, there's no sense watching both of them. It's pretty much the same thing. So I'm going to latch on to WWE or whatever. Now, wait a minute. You said that there's a lot of comedy in the old Memphis wrestling scene. You mean to tell me that those those midget fights and the Christmas creature weren't meant to be serious competitors and things that the crowd <laughs> should... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like the Dragon Master <laughs> that, that Burt Prentice talks about in the in the book that I just released. The Dragon Master was a guy come in and they put Burt Prentice with him to manage him, and he he only had like six matches under his belt before that somewhere else out in the Carolinas oh, or someplace, geez. and they ended up putting the belt on him, the unified whatever the Memphis belt was, unified world title or something after two weeks, and of course they dropped it back to Lawler a week or so later, but. Yeah, it, it, it would definitely, that, that stuff wasn't really, wasn't real <laughs> meant to be real ser- taken real seriously, but the people here loved it. You know, that, that, that they educated Nick Goulas years ago and Roy Welch. They educated the people on that kind of wrestling, the, the scuffling hillbillies, you know, the guys, a lot of them didn't even look like pro wrestlers, you know, but they were, they, they the people loved them just because it, I guess maybe it was because the country people looked at Jackie Fargo and people like that as being just like them, the scuff on hillbillies, you know, they were, they were ordinary people. They, they didn't look like the great big, uh, like the rock or somebody, you know, that they couldn't identify with, which is the same as dusty road. That's why dusty got over so big in Florida. People could identify with him. Do you think that's, do you think that's what led to the appeal? I mean, obviously people, you know, the, the, the common every man, but what about your, I know it wasn't really territory until much later because they started in in England, but you get your people like uh, like your giant haystacks or someone like that who, no offense to him, doesn't look like an athlete. You know, he 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 wasn't like you said he wasn't. uh, I mean, you look at the physique of like a Rick Rude, and and then look at someone like that and go, wait a minute, these guys have the same job. Do you think that was kind of it? People could relate like, hey, you know, a uh, couple weeks in the gym and I could I could be in the same shape Dusty Rhodes is versus I could spend the rest of my life in the gym and I'm never going to have an eight pack. Right. Absolutely. I agree. I, I agree with that 100 percent. But I also think that was part of the downfall of pro wrestling. It got to a point where as the crowds got more and more sophisticated and yeah, Nashville was a country town, but it, it got to a point where 
it wasn't just a, you know, what people think of Nashville in the old days, they think it as being a bunch of hillbillies. And maybe at one point it was, but later on, you know, people were moving in from other states and, and it's become more of a melting pot of, of all kinds of states. And people, uh, pe- people just, it was funny for a while, you know, but after a while, you, it's like, you've seen it once, you've seen it always, you know, you've seen it a hundred times. It's like the midget matches. I love the midget matches back in, in, even in Florida, you know, they did the midget matches with all the funny stuff. And I used to laugh about this, but after you've seen them three, four times, it's pretty much the same thing. Right. So, uh, Scott, speaking of one of your, uh, your, uh, location or arena books, I have in my hands wrestling in the garden. And I, I mentioned to you offline that you could give me this book and some coconuts and drop me off on Gilligan's Island for a couple of weeks. And, and I'm good. I got everything I need. I got my food and I got my, my reading materials. This thing is, it, it, it's fabulous. It's got everything. It's got results from, I think the early 1900s to like about a hundred years, hundred years worth of results. It's got those little box ads that I absolutely went, when I first became a fan uh, in, in 1968, 1969, when I got the, uh, the daily news delivered to our house, I used to cut those little box ads out from from MSG to so to see those again. It was like going back in a time machine, and uh, so uh, I, I was curious because I you know I've done a number of stories for pro wrestling stories, and for me typically a story takes maybe like five to ten hours for a, a three thousand word story. Back in the day when I worked at City Corp, we called we had something called an FTE, a full time equivalent. So a full time equivalent was one hundred and seventy three point three three hours per month so what kind of work because i can only imagine the amount of work uh that went into the compilation of this book i mean how many how many hours went into this book it's it's hard to say you know because i worked on it on and off for six seven years i guess well actually i put out a the record book just the the results uh you know probably 25 years ago and then uh eight, nine, 10 years ago is when I put out this most recent uh, edition, but it, uh, it's hard to say. Uh, you're probably talking five, 600 hours at least. I mean, I, 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 there would be weeks I'd do nothing but it. I'd work, I'm up at four o'clock every morning and I, I'd start working around five after I answer emails and stuff. And I might work right up till five in the afternoon, you know, 12 hours a day on it. Uh, and it's the same with uh, like Tim Dills with Knoxville, Chris Knights with Amarillo. Uh, Koji Miyamoto with a Japan book. Uh, the, 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 the key to doing one of those books is first collecting, uh, looking up all the results, getting all the results printed, typed up, and then you start going back through the newspapers and just you type in a name. Say, say for the uh, Knoxville book, I type in George Kazana. He was the promoter. Well, I look at every single article in the newspaper articles, and you're talking about thousands and thousands for little snippets of information about George Kazana and the, the and his promotion from back in that day. But it, yeah, it takes a lot of time, but you know, when you love doing something like that to me, it, every time I, you know, if I type in George Kazana uh, and I, I see an article has a mention other than just something simple, like, you know, he, he was at the matches or he wrestled or whatever, uh, something interesting, some fact, you know, I find something like that and I, and I'm looking, reading it. And I'm thinking that is so cool because that's something nobody knows, you know, nobody else knows about. 
you know, because none of that, none of that stuff is in the only place it was ever printed was the newspapers. And I like taking all that stuff from the newspapers and then putting it between all those results and the right, you know, for the say, if it was a December 16th, 1945 newspaper uh, wrestling show, and then December 17th, they had a big article about George Kazana. That's what I do. I'd put that article between the December 16th show and the December 23rd show. Uh, so, so it sort of flows chronologically, and it gives you a really good overview of the promotion. It's it's phenomenal. Like I said, I I could lock myself in a room, and as long as I have something to eat, I'm I'm good for at least a couple of weeks. Well, right. you did say you did say you'd need at least a few coconuts, Benny. Coconuts, yeah, that's true. Maybe some. Well, I need something to drink. Something to drink. <laughs> <laughs> But it's a ball. I have a lot of fun doing those. I, I love working on those kind of things. And I love working on books, you know, like Tim Baker's Master of the Ring. His book was pretty well pretty well finished when he sent it to me. I did some editing. I didn't do have to do near as much on that one as I did in, in the other books. But yes, those wrestling books like Wrestling in the Garden, man, it's just there is so much information uh, to find and to dig up. I don't know if you've read Fall Guys, but man. That was one of my favorite projects because, man, the things that was that were wrong uh, in the original uh, edition of Fall Guys or lies that were told in the original edition of Fall Guys, people had no clue. But even though it was, there was so much untruths and lies and uh, misinformation in the original Fall Guys, it's still the best book we've got from that that era. And it gave Steve Yoey and I uh, a place to start to begin in our research and then we started researching all the things that the author talked about and and you know laying out what was true what wasn't true uh why they said this why they said that hmm. well you know actually let me let me get off topic for a second there when you you talked about what is what isn't we've had Stories uh, that have come up on the show in the past and the various research we've done and Benny and I have talked about it offline that there's certain narratives when it comes when it you know the, when it comes to wrestlers the line blurs and uh, I've seen it in interviews with like Kevin Sullivan is a great example um, unfortunately some of the fantastic stories that Hulk Hogan has told through the years where the line blurs between the character and what actually happened. And I'm curious, especially in the days, a lot of the research you've done when kayfabe was, was real and, and some local papers would report on the wrestling event. And I hate to use that term, but report to the, on the wrestling event as if it had, it was a real sport, like a real competition. I'm wondering, uh, would you have any, any issues or, or any fun stories about having to get through that line where, Sometimes the 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 actual sources you would go to were intentionally wrong or just didn't know the difference. No, yeah, no. Most of the stuff, the research I do for for a book like that. Uh, I, well, I, let me explain it this way: when I went to uh, the University of Tampa Library uh, back in nineteen seventy, I believe I discovered that book called Fall Guys, and I checked it out. I was amazed at the stuff they talked about in that book. And that's really what put me on the line to start going to libraries and checking out microfilm and putting the micro uh, for newspapers and going through the microfilm and reading these articles. But you would be surprised at how many articles, uh, well, 
90% of the articles in, in the newspapers were simply so-and-so beat so-and-so, so-and-so beat so-and-so. No information whatsoever. They might tell a little bit about the match, the fans rioted, or that this guy dropped him over the top rope, he hit his back on the ring apron and fell to the floor, and they had to carry him to the back. And all that was all, it was just storyline. And I, I think a lot of that was, a lot of the newspaper editors, they were friends with the promoters, and the promoters gave them three tickets or took care of them in some way. Some, some they even paid uh, to write the articles. But they, they knew better than to expose the business because they knew you know, there were some, yeah, there were some that would, that would come out and say, ah, oh, this is all a bunch of baloney. Uh, you know, you, you'll find those articles all over the place. But for the most part, that's all, all, you, all you got in those days. You just had articles about what happened at the wrestling matches. And that, to me, is the least interesting of the stuff. Now, I enjoy, I do, you know, like in the Madison Square Garden book, I do print things, you know, things that happened during the match. You know, somebody fell on the, on the edge of the ring apron, had to be carried back or whatever. It just sort of gives an overview of what the storyline was. But for the most part, the important stuff to me was little things that happened behind the scenes. And if you know, I, I guess you have to know something about the business to, to, dig, to really realize what some of the writers and newspaper writers were saying, because you, that's like the Knoxville book. I cannot believe how much information that the, I forget the guy's name, Tom something. He was a staff writer for the Knoxville Sentinel that wrote for years. And he used to tell stuff about George Gazana, the promoter, that just, I'm like, I cannot believe they even printed this because it, it was almost an expose on the business. But it was, it'd just be one little line. You know, you wouldn't, you, you'd, he'd have this huge article and buried in the middle of that article was this one little line that was like, if you know anything about the wrestling business, hey, I know what that means. Uh, you know, so you, you learn a lot of things that way. But if you, for the average ordinary people who don't know the insides of the business, don't know what goes on behind the scenes, they probably glossed right over that line, didn't even think about it. But but yeah, for the most part, all most of the articles were just kayfabe stuff, just storyline things. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's definitely one way to look at it. Benny, what do you think? Yeah, um, I I kind of like I wanted to touch on something with Scott, and I I love Nikita Brezhnikov's book when it was real. Because it literally, when I would read that, it's just, you know, a 10-year history of the WWF from, I guess, 70 to 79. And, you know, a lot of it's just results, but there's there's a lot of backstory um, in, in the book as well. But I randomly flipped to page 172 in this book, the, the Wrestling at the Garden. And there was this one little, it was from the Trenton Times from, I believe, August of 1965. Some poor guy went to uh, dinner with his son in Manhattan, uh, went to the garden and was actually going to uh, drive to his summer house somewhere in New Jersey after the matches. And the, the poor guy had a heart attack at the garden and uh, passed away that evening. I think he was like 68 years old. And the thing that I found not really unusual because in that, in that article, they mentioned his home address. And that's what they did back in the day in the newspapers. When, when something happened, you know, John Doe of 142 Intervale Avenue, and, and now they wouldn't dare do that, right? I mean, people's privacy is too important to them. But back then, any any article about any poor schlub that something happened to, they always included their home address, which I find fascinating. And then on the next page, um, and this is just like inconsequential stuff, but 
there was the results of a card at Madison Square Garden uh, in January of 66, where Bruno defeated Baron Mikel Cicluna. And, you know, the average fan wouldn't think most much of that. But um, if you ascribe to a lot of the wrestling pages on Facebook, a lot of the younger fans remember Baron Cicluna um, in the early 80s when he was, you know, pretty much an enhancement talent and was putting everyone over. And, they you know, they used that derogatory term jobber to describe him without realizing that back in the day, the guy was like a main eventer. So I guess my whole point is, it, every page of this book somehow evokes, at least for me, because I lived through it, uh, emotion. It, it takes me back in time. So it, was that kind of the intended effect, not just to report the facts, but uh, you know, when, when the reader reads these facts, they're going to remember, I remember when that happened. This is what I was doing. That's what's so important to me. Really, the reason I latched on to Nikita Bresnikov's book at first, when I first started reading through it, I thought, man, this is just sort of a summary of what happened at television and what happened in the arenas. It's just sort of like a rundown of who beat who. But the more I got into it, I thought, and, and I guess the reason it took me a while is because I was never, uh, I never saw a WWF TV program, you know, so it was, so, and, and, and I saw a little bit of one, but it was so different from what I was used to in Florida and definitely different from what I was used to in Tennessee. Uh, it was really to me, and I, I don't want to insult, you know, the WWF, but they were a lot slower, you know, and they didn't do the blood and guts, <laughs> you know, blood and gut stuff I was used to. But uh, Nikita's book, it's like if you were a fan back then, when you're reading that book, it takes you back to the to, to that to that TV show. You know, you you're sitting there and you're reading. You say, Oh man, I remember when they did that. Or even if you weren't there, it's, it's the, it's what you just said, the emotion you sit there, you think, Oh man, that's a cool angle, man. I can imagine what I, I would have loved to have been there for the live for that match. That's what's so great about that book. It, it just brings for fans, especially fans in the WWF. It just brings back all the emotions, all the memories of, of all those little things, like with Chief J. Strongbow, you know, all the, that kind of stuff that happened. It, it was just great. And I just, like I said, I was captivated after reading through it for a while. And I, and I told Nikita, I said, I would love to publish this because it's just, it's just a, I don't know, it's just a, a step back in time, I guess you could, you could say. And it really does uh, help us remember those times. And a lot of that isn't really available, you know, not in depth like Nikita wrote it. I mean, he did a great job of, of presenting it and taking all those little angles and, and uh, re, you know, writing it so as if, you know, it made you feel like you were there, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And the thing about the uh, addresses in the newspaper, yes, they did that all the time. And it used to tickle me when I, I'd be doing research and I came across one one time, Lester Welch was a big name down in, in promoter down in Florida. And he moved there from Georgia at one time, at one point. And in the little, I guess it's the community section, it said, Lester Welch just bought a house at XXX uh, Frobido Street in Temple Terrace, Florida. And I thought, I can't even imagine back then them, them you know, pr listing in the newspaper a wrestler's address because, I mean, fans would love that. They probably had all kinds of fans driving by to, to see his place, but that, but that was that they did that, you know, and as far as the man having a heart attack at the matches that happened more times than you would think if you've never 
never experienced uh, wrestling as a fan back then. If you weren't really, um, weren't really a true blue fan where you believed at all. Uh, it's probably hard to believe this, but people got so upset that they would, I mean, you could see their faces turn red and, and I can see where people would have heart attacks, especially some of the older people, because they would just, it would just be like, they couldn't contain themselves. And that happened so many times. People have heart attacks. A lot of them died at the matches. Freddie Blassie, I think if I remember correctly in Japan, there was two people at one match at one show that had a heart attack because of things he was doing. So Nikita's title, when it was real, is perfect because that's, you know, people were that involved in it, emotionally involved in it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And people, even me, I mean, yeah, when I started, first time I started watching wrestling, first few weeks, I thought every bit of it was real. And then somebody at school said, well, you know, that's not all real. I said, what do you mean? And so they, they said, well, you know, they're faking it or whatever, whatever it was they said to me. And I, I said, well, that may be. And. I, so I started watching for little things and I realized, yeah, maybe they are, but that didn't matter to me. I still loved it. Now. Yeah. It got to a point where, uh, after several months, I, I wasn't the screaming hollering guy, uh, you know, first few, first couple months that, that I was doing the screaming and hollering, you know, but after a while I didn't, I just started watching. I started watching real close and thinking, yeah, I can see that. Why are they doing that? You know, before I just wanted, and I think that's with most people. People, whether they believed all of it or not, they wanted to believe. And a lot of people, they, they, they'd walk, you'd, you'd hear them. They'd walk in the arena and hear them talking to somebody. Yeah, this stuff is fake. You know, they plan it. Well, then as soon as the matches start, man, they're going crazy. I mean, absolutely crazy yelling at these guys, screaming at the top of their lungs. He cheating, referee, look. You know, it's, like, it's, it's almost like it was an escape for them. They just wanted to believe so they could forget about the work world, forget about the problems at home. It was just something that they could latch onto and enjoy. And, and in some ways become a part of when they're yelling at the referee watching, he's got a, he's got a string in his trunks. You know, they felt like they were contributing, helping the, the baby face guy, you know, they were doing something to, to, it was almost like they, they felt like they were a part of the show. Now that's not to the extent uh, when the WWF became real big, where the fans felt they were part of the show. That was, that was quite a different thing. But back then, it was just the fans just, I don't know, they just latched onto it as, yeah, the, yeah, this stuff. They, they, and I remember my, one of my best friends, he tells me, and I, told, I did tell him this, but when I told him this, it was after I was already starting to get my feet wet in the business. I was going to the shows, taking pictures, and I'd met some of the guys. And he, he said something about it one time. And I said, yeah, I said, well, you know, those opening matches may be fake, but those championship matches are real. Well, he tells me this day he keeps, he always reminds me of me saying that. And yeah, granted, I, you know, he thinks that I was serious about it. And I, well, well, I was serious because I don't want anybody, I didn't want ever going to expose the business never. Uh, so I was serious when I said that, but I didn't, it wasn't that I believed it. It was just, I wasn't going to tell him any different. I don't care how good a friend he was. <laughs> I never, never exposed the business to anybody up until, you know, 93, when I started doing the newsletters. And, and that was only at the behest of the, the wrestlers themselves. Cause my first few, uh, whatever happened to magazines was very kayfabe, you know, it was just very basic stuff. And after about the fourth issue, the wrestler started saying, man, tell these stories, tell it like it was, you know, there's no, all this is coming out, you know? So that's when I started doing the shoot interviews. Well, as we, uh, 
as we wrap up here, Scott, you have, uh, you mentioned it already. You have a new book out. Yep. Tonight, tonight, tonight by Bert Prentice and myself, uh, Bert, uh, and I shoot, we've been working on that book probably six years. I'd say when we first started, uh, Bert got sick and we weren't had, an, and he was super busy that Bert Prentice was 24 seven wrestling. And in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's opinions, he was the last true old school promoter living today. He lived and breathed wrestling. He promoted it the way they used to back in the day. Uh, and he, he drew fairly decent crowds. He, he was the, really, he's the only full-time promoter other than, you know, guys like Vince or whoever else is promoting the big, the biggies, uh, probably the only full-time, uh, independent promoter that was actually making a living his full-time living uh, from pro wrestling. And uh, sadly enough, uh, the book is just phenomenal. He, he has so many good stories of the origins of global wrestling, uh, his promotions in Wichita, uh, him traveling around. He, go, he got his start in San Antonio with Joe Blanchard. And then he gets into Memphis. And he, this guy is a gold mine when it comes to behind-the-scenes stuff in Memphis. Uh, the sad thing is we got to uh, – we talked about his – USA championship wrestling promotion in Jackson some, but we didn't get in depth on it. And we, we would have had another whole book on Memphis. I mean, he knew everything that went on. I mean, everything he was in that office for the longest time and we just never got around to it. Um, we had planned actually to do a second book that would be focused strictly on Memphis, but, uh, we just never got around to it until he got sick. But, uh, but yeah, I'm proud of the book and I just, it breaks my heart. Uh, you just wouldn't believe because, uh, Bert wanted that book so bad. In fact, three weeks before he died, we talked and I have this in the back of the book, our conversation. And, uh, he said, Scott, he says, I don't think I'm going to make it. Uh, cause he was really going downhill. And he says, the only thing I would like, he says, if you could get that book done, he says, I know I'm, I'm probably going to die soon. He says, but I would like to be holding my book when I pass away. And uh, you talk about breaking your heart. Oh my goodness. Wow. Oh that's hard to listen to. Oh my good. He wanted that book so bad. And I did, I worked past, well, three weeks before he died up until about four weeks ago, it was 24 seven Burt Prentice's book. And there you go. Talk about research and stuff. That's what I was doing and editing and, you know, 10, 12 hours a day for three, about two, two, three months. Uh, that's, that's just what you got to do, you know, but I, I hate it that he wasn't here to see his book, but, uh, uh, nothing else. This book is a testament to the legacy of Burt Prentice. And when you read it, you'll understand. Uh, he shares so much about promoting what it takes to be a true promoter, the problems he faces as a promoter. And he names the, he says the number one heat getter in the wrestling business is the heels. It's the promoters. He says, cause no matter what you do, the guys think they should either have been paid more. They weren't used right. He said, it doesn't matter how, how good you do. And it's, it's a fascinating look on, uh, and I think he explains it really well. You know, it's a fascinating look on what a promoter uh, at wrestling through the eyes of a true promoter. Absolutely. And for those out there, you know, uh, like you said, you and Burt Prentice book is called tonight, 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 and it can be found at crowbarpress.com. Uh, do you have any, uh, any final words, uh, Scott? 
No, I just appreciate you having me on this program. I mean, this is, I love talking with you guys. You guys are all, uh, you know, I, I've gone on some podcasts and the guys, uh, you know, they'll ask me sort of some questions. It's like, it's like they're trying to think of them as, as they go along, you know, think, well, let me think what I'll ask next. But you guys are always prepared. You have great questions and it makes it easier for me because I'm beyond uh, you. I mean, I, you probably don't believe this, but I'm not type of guy could get up there and talk. That's why I never was a manager. I never cared to be. I couldn't have got up there in front of a TV and talked. I'm just not, I can't speak off the cuff, but you guys give me the questions and pulling, you know, you give me stuff that I need to, to think about that helps me answer those questions. So I really appreciate you. And I appreciate you having me on the, on the, on the program. Our pleasure. Absolutely. And we say this every time, Scott, we, we talk for an hour and barely scratch the surface. And it seems like every every time we talk to you, you've got uh, a new book or another one in the works. And I mean, I can I can only imagine. And I still I know they say talking and writing is different, but you're right. I don't believe uh, a man that can write as well as you do is ever is ever at a loss for words. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but no, we we appreciate it, and we'll. Uh, We'll definitely get in touch with you again, have you back on uh, again for those listening. The uh, new book is Tonight, 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 story of Burt Prentice, and it is available at crowbarpress.com. So, Scott, again, thank you so much for your time. I know you're you're very busy, and I appreciate it, and we always have a, a great time having you on. So, I, I again, you. appreciate your time. Uh, so, th- thank you so much, everybody. The, the legendary Scott Seal. Scott, you have yourself a great evening. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Benny. I appreciate it. And we'll look forward to talking to you again. Good night, Scott. Absolutely. Good Good night, night. sir. Always a fun talk conversation, Benny. You know, I, it's his crowbar press is kind of like, I call it the the Capitol grill, which is a great restaurant here in Tampa. I don't, you know, food is life. I got to bring food into this, but, but the menu, it's like, you know, you, you look at it like I'm going to have this and then you look like one item down. No, no, no. I'm going to have this, you know, and then like you have by item number 10, you want to order all 10 of them. But, you know, kind of like the same thing. I was I had a certain book I was going to after I got done with my coconuts and this book um, at the garden, I was going to choose something else. But I think I really want to read this birth Bert Prentice book. Yeah, it just it's sounds like, very uh... fascinating. <laughs> Only only you can uh, can can pitch a book idea or, or a story of a book and, and make it about ordering the chicken instead of the, the steak. That's what I do. Hey, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You said Capitol Grill. Isn't that a famous steakhouse down down where you live? It's a very nice one. Yes, sir. Okay. But you can get well, many things besides steak, though. You can get chicken parm. You can get sea bass, you know. So <laughs> you, you got some good choices there. Same there as Crowbar Press. Well, yeah, I don't I don't get much in the way of fancy steakhouses, but we have uh, we have Captain George's up here in Virginia, the greatest buffet in America, seafood, crab legs, scallops, all the good stuff. I did go but, to Guy Fieri's up there, which was phenomenal. I really enjoyed oh, that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I did, he does have the strip up here. Good old yes, Guy sir. Fieri. I know we got we, we're, we're moving on. But uh, any closing thoughts, Benny? No, I just again, you know, last time Scott was on. I asked about half my questions. Same thing this time. So I got to have him back. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for the BS Express himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spash Channel. Have a good night, everyone. And as always, happy wrestling. Night, folks, and stay safe. <laughs>